Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast, where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Storenagel. Who are you? Who are you? I guess that's not a question that is often asked quite so directly, right? In many contexts, it might be a bit creepy if you just walk up to someone and go, who are you? It may sound a bit aggressive. Uh, But it's not that uncommon a question either. It just needs context. It's often implied in other questions, isn't it? What's your name? Tell me... Tell me more about you. Or maybe it is brought up once the context is set for the question not to be that blunt, not to be that weird and out of context. And how we answer probably depends a lot on the context in which we're being asked that question. So maybe if that question was asked as you arrived at OIC today or as you sit for church coffee afterwards, You might assume that people are interested in hearing where you come from. Are you from Norway? Are you from abroad? Um, What brought you to this country or to this city? Uh, What brought you to a church service on a sunny afternoon? Maybe what brought you specifically to OIC? And maybe that's what we answer to. Who are you? Well, I'm I'm Mike and I'm from Brazil. uh, And I have been living in Norway for over a decade. I ended up here because apparently God has been experimenting with what happens when you leave Brazilians in Arctic conditions for very long. Let's see what happens. Who are you? Maybe if that question is directed to you at, work, at a work event, then you might answer it differently, right? You might answer it giving your qualification, your job title, your role in the company. Who are you? I'm, in, I don't know, I answer, I'm an advisor for existential questions responsible for making people question the meaning of life, and I also manage caffeine control. So, I don't know, whatever you do in your workplace. Maybe that's how we answer. Who are you? Maybe if the context is this big family gathering of some sort, I don't know how that works in your context, but I've been to family gatherings in, in Brazil, and it's like, I don't know half the people. <laughs> And you might answer by explaining how you are related to the people there. Who are you? Well, I'm the boyfriend of the cousin of the sister-in-law of the birthday guy. You try to make a connection. Who are you? Whichever the context, it seems the answer often holds an attempt to not only explain, not only describe, but to sort of justify our presence in the space. Who are you is also, why are you here? Not only who I am, but why am I here? How do I defend my right to be here? Today's question has this question, today's question, today's text. Today's text has this question at its center, both literarily, but also in terms of meaning. And it is asked quite clearly and bluntly, but also very reasonably, 
But the question is not only there in the explicit asking of the question, who are you? It is a question that crosses the whole chapter and indeed the whole narrative of the story of the book of Ruth, which we have been spending time with this month. And today we are at chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. But before I read it, I ask that those of you who already know the story of Ruth very well and have heard me retell it repeatedly in the past weeks, that you will bear with me as I quickly recap the stories of chapter 1 and 2 one more time just for the benefit of those of us who might not have been here and maybe don't know the story. So the book of Ruth, small little book in the Hebrew scriptures, in what we call often the Old Testament. In the Christian Bible, it is squeezed in between the books of uh, Judges and the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and then the Kings. And it's there because it tells the story of Ruth, who is of the genealogy of King David. Now, the thing with Ruth is Ruth is a Moabite. She is not an Israelite. This is how the story goes. A couple from Israel, from the area of Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi, leave Israel because there's a famine. There's no food. There's no grain. There's no... They leave. A known story, right? And they leave to Moab. Why they leave to Moab, we don't know. What we do know is that there's enmity between Moab and Israel that has been a long-term and a particularly sour kind of enmity. But that's where they go. They live there, and while they're living there, and they take together with, with them their two kids, Kilion and Malon, while they're there, Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow. But her two sons had married local women, Moabite women, which an Israelite guy is not supposed to do. But they're there. They marry Ruth and Orpah. And then, after 10 years, these two die. Kilion and Malon die. So now Naomi is left alone with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, in a foreign land. And she hears that grain is back in the fields in Israel. The famine is over. There's food. uh, There's possibilities. And there's nothing for her there. So she starts going back with her two daughters-in-law. They go with her. But at some point, she stops and she says, what are you doing? Don't come with me. There's nothing for you in Israel. I am too old to give you a new husband. I'm not going to have children today. Even if I had, you're not going to wait. Go back to your families. Stay in your country. Get yourself new husbands. Get a life here. Because the chances of you getting a life there are just, I have nothing to offer. So they have some back and forth. Her, sister, her daughters-in-law are sad about this, but eventually Orpah gives in and leaves. But Ruth clings to Naomi and says, I am not going anywhere. I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I will go. And maybe you heard, if you heard anything from Ruth, maybe it was this discourse, right, from, from Ruth to Naomi. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lay her, I will, I will lay my head. Your God will be my God. Your people will, will be my people. Let nothing else than death separate us. They go back to Israel. They arrive in Israel, and people are going, is this Naomi? Naomi who left 10 years ago. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. That name means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because I'm coming back empty. I lost everything. The Lord took everything away from me. So they're back now in Israel. They're both destitute, because in the near, in the near, in the ancient Near East, uh, land rights and social rights are connected to men. Women that don't have a husband have nothing, have access to no rights, so they're destitute. So Ruth goes to work to do something called glean the fields, which is to go after the harvesters, pick whatever is left, so they have something to eat. Ruth does that, meets a guy named Boaz, who is the owner of the field, 
who recognizes Ruth as the, as the daughter-in-law of Naomi and has heard everything that Ruth has been doing for Naomi and tells her, stay in my fields, work in my fields, take grain to your, to your mother-in-law so that you will not go hungry and so that you will be safe. In a nutshell, that's what happened so far. So now we come to Ruth chapter 3. So this is how the story goes. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young woman you have been working. See his winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young man, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then, as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Who are you? Who are you? The question is right there, right? Right in the middle of the chapter and at the narrative climax of this whole story. Everything that has happened so far and everything that will happen hereafter hinges on this interaction between Ruth and Boaz. We still have chapter 4, but chapter 4 is basically a development of this encounter. And what will happen? What did happen? The narrative is meant and it is written to keep us on edge. 
curious, excited, perhaps even a bit fearful or apprehensive. And the setting, the stage, it is charged in multiple ways. The threshing floor is the place where they beat the grain to separate the chaff from the grain so that you can actually use the grain for baking, roasting, whatever, right? And the threshing floor is a place of joy and celebration when it is not a time of famine. The harvest brings plenty, and it promises life for the season ahead. The fertility of the land is celebrated. We have grain. We can live. The moods are high, and once the work is done, the wine flows and the laughter rolls, and there is joy. The threshing floor is also an overtly male environment. And now it is night. It is dark. And darkness and high levels of testosterone and alcohol, they don't exactly make for a safe environment for a woman. Neither for the safeness of her body or of her reputation. Also, the threshing floor is charged with sexual innuendo. As the place where the fertility of the land is celebrated, it was widely seen as a place for the celebration of all kinds of fertility in the ancient Near East. The fertility of the land and the bearing of children were intimately connected, both in the subsistence, you need hands to work the farm, and, the bear, and, and also the religious and social imagination of the cultures in that time period, in that area, Israel included. And, and also, sorry, and also the original Hebrew language, which, again, we, we often get lost in translation. The original Hebrew language in which this story was written, it is ripe with double entendres. And much has been written and discussed concerning the events of that night on the threshing floor. What happened? So it's no wonder that upon waking up and seeing a woman in this setting, Boaz would ask, who are you? Who are you? Are you an enemy or are you a friend? Are you here with good or are you here with mischievous intentions? And once Boaz can discern Ruth's face in the darkness and hear her voice, the question is still ringing. Who are you? Are you Ruth the laborer of the field? Are you Ruth the Moabite? Ruth the seducer? Ruth the trap for Boaz's integrity? Those labels, they were often and abound used for Moabite women that they were bent on seducing in order to lead men astray, to worship other gods, that they were bent on that and that these apparently poor Israelite men could not hold themselves. And, yeah, if you don't get that, I'm being ironic, okay? Let's not use that excuse. But that's the narrative. We know the narrative, right? Those women over there, the Moabite women, 
Is that why you're here? Why are you here? Who are you? Ruth's answer, it is surprising. And it is layered with meaning. Now that she answers with her name should not be surprising, maybe, one might argue. That she answers with her name alone, that's something else. Because Ruth's name alone has hardly ever been used in the story so far. Only in the beginning when she was in Moab. But when she leaves and comes to Israel, she is Ruth the Moabite. She is Ruth the foreigner. She is Ruth the other. Ruth the widow. Ruth the... Add the adjectives. But now she answers. Now she has a voice. And she is Ruth. But she says more, right? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. And that's an interesting move because in doing that, she identifies herself in relation to Boaz personally. Not in relation to the nation of Israel, not in relation to her home country, in relation to Boaz. I am Ruth, your servant. And and so she starts her work of asking that he also answers who he is. Because she goes further and she disobeys, in fact, if we pay attention to the story, she disobeys the instruction of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Because Naomi had told her, lay there and he will tell you what to do. But she doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She challenges him. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. And this is bold. This is bold because it requires of Boaz an answer to two different questions. When she asks him to spread his cloak over her, she is asking him to marry her. Okay, that's the cultural code. Let's not go into all of it, but she's asking him to marry her quite plainly. And she's, you know, if it was a movie nowadays, she would be going down on her knee and pulling out the ring. That's what she's doing. Will you marry me? And when she says, you are next of kin, she is asking that he recognize her as part of the family. And the thing is, he didn't necessarily have to. Naomi's status as the next of kin was undeniable. But Ruth... Her status could reasonably be questioned in the legal wobbly terms and framework for foreign wives, not to speak of foreign widows, and there was actually especially room, loopholes in the law for Moabites, specific for Moabites. Actually, if it was the other way around, if it was an Israeli woman married to a Moabite man, it would be clear in the law of the time, that he should not be counted as next of kin. Because it's a woman, it's a bit unclear. Nobody knows. Any good lawyer could get away with it. The question, who are you, Ruth, has been building up through the whole narrative. And it is not just a question of who you are. It is a question of becoming. Who are you becoming in this story, Ruth? Who are you becoming, And maybe part of the question is who she is becoming sort of in herself 
what kind of change she is undergoing in her pilgrimage, in her move. And, and that's often how where we look at it, because we have a very individualistic framework for when we read scriptures. But much more important to the historical cultural context, and much more important to the story, is the question of what she is becoming for others. And Ruth's challenge to Boaz reveals the underlying question of the narrative. Who are you, Ruth, for Boaz? And she reveals the question isn't only about Ruth. Who are you, Boaz? Ruth is asking with her answer. Are you the one who will be my goel? Now, goel is the term for the, what we often call a guardian redeemer. It was a legal term for the person who could rescue legally a widow by marrying her, and by marrying her, making it possible for her to access the lands of the deceased husband. Because now there's a man in the story that can own land. And so restores her to society and to safety, to food, to all these things. Goel, will you be my Goel? The one who, through marriage, would rescue both Ruth and Naomi from their destitute status. But the question runs deeper. In chapter 2, Boaz had said to Ruth when he met her in the fields the first time, he said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done to Naomi. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now that's how Boaz interprets and understands Ruth's move to Israel. And now Ruth isn't only asking Boaz to marry her, she is asking him to be himself the enactment of God's justice that he had declared in more sort of theological general terms before. What she's saying, will you be the way in which God gives me refuge under his wings? Will you be the way in which your theology becomes life? Who are you, Boaz? Who are you becoming? And who is God becoming for me, Ruth asks, because of you? Who is God becoming for me because of you? Perhaps God is all that you have said of him, Boaz. But not for me, not at this time. Will God be the God who covers with his wings? Will the warmth of your body, Boaz, and the cover of your legal rights, and the nurture of your grain in my belly and in my womb be the means through which God can become for me that which you say that God is? It's a profound question. And it is the question not only of Ruth, it is the question of many in the narrative. Who is God for me because of you? When Ruth returns to Naomi, our Bible translations have her asking, Naomi asking, how did things go with you, my daughter? And that is a translation that tries to make sense of the text in context, but quite literally what Naomi asks her is, who are you? Who are you, my daughter? Who are you? Have you now become something else? Do you now have hopes of becoming something else? other than just the foreigner widow? The underlying question is obvious, isn't it? Can we have hopes that you will become the wife of Boaz? 
And if Naomi's intentions are for Ruth to have security, she, she says it herself, but the deep question for Naomi is not unlike the question of Ruth to Boaz, which is the question, who will God become for me because of you? Who will God become for me because of you? Because the question, who are you, runs deep in this story for Naomi. Who are you, Naomi? And the people of the town ask when she arrives, is this Naomi? Who are you, Naomi? Are you, Naomi, pleasant? Or are you Mara, bitter? And Naomi's understanding of herself runs hand in hand with her understanding of God. The God whom she says had brought her back empty, afflicted her, and brought misfortune upon her. There's a wonderful detail in the first chapter of the story. When Naomi has been led to think of herself as Mara, she tells her daughters-in-law, May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. What the grammar there betrays and reveals is that Naomi recognizes in Ruth and even in Orpah a kindness that she does not at that moment recognize in God. And she is effectively saying that she wants God to act more like Ruth. I hope that God will act more like you towards you. And if that sounds offensive, we need only to tap into the despair of our own lives and dare some honesty with God. Who is God becoming for Naomi because of Ruth? We don't know how Naomi will answer to that question. But the narrator, the narrator gives us the possibility of a different answer, right? That the God who is refuge is refuge also for Ruth and for Naomi and for Boaz. Who is God for these characters in this story because of each other? What do we find out about God because of them? They are all integral to the asking and to the answering. But perhaps, and that's the genius of the narrative, right? We need, we need all these questions, and they make a compound image. But perhaps the question in the center of today's text is really the one tying all of these together, right? Who are you, Ruth? Who is God becoming or re revealing the God self to be because of Ruth in the story of Ruth? That's the absurd and wonderful claim of the book of Ruth. Can this woman be a nexus of God's revelation for Naomi, for Boaz, and for Israel? Because in that question, who are you, Ruth? There is the possibility of recognizing a God that is one who welcomes the widow and the foreigner, the other, of recognizing a God who welcomes the enemy and reconciles, a God who breaks down all of those prejudices, a God who sees the hunger before he sees all these other things. Here is a God who changes Boaz because of the foreigner and gives Boaz the challenge and the opportunity to lean more into who God is. 
and become more true to his own faith and theology? Will you, Boaz, be the wings? <laughs> Will you, Ruth, be the image of a God who challenges us to love the other? Who is God becoming for us because of Ruth and because of Boaz and Naomi as we retell this story? There's a lot of discussions about when Ruth was written. Some say it was written and why it was written. Some say it was written earlier in history to justify the fact that there's a Moabite woman in the ancestry of David. David is the stereotypical king of Israel. So a lot of the Old Testament and the history of Israel goes around making David look good. So when you have a Moabite woman as his ancestor, you have to find your way around that. And then the book of Ruth comes there. That's why in, in the Christian scriptures, it, it's there between uh, Judges and the beginning of the monarchy for Samuel. And then you look at that and you're like, okay, that makes sense. Another possible writing time is post-exile. In a time in which Israelites are coming back to the land, and when they're coming back to the land, there's a lot of discussion of who is allowed, who isn't, who we need to kick out. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a lot of extremely uncomfortable stuff about sending away the foreign wives. And in that context, the, Ruth, the story of Ruth becomes necessary. Now, we don't know when it was written. We know it was used in post-exilic period as well. Who is God becoming for us because of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi? How do we understand God? And who is God becoming for others because of us? And with that, I wanted to go towards the end here. That's the question for Boaz. That's the question for us. Who is God becoming for others because of us? What image of God do people have because of how we, who declare faith in such a God, relate to them. How we love them or turn our backs on them. How we uh, feed them or don't, you know. How we talk about them or about ourselves. It's, it's actually not a question of Ruth. It's a question of the scriptures as a whole, isn't it? There's this... this Wonderful moment in the Gospels in which Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say I am? Who do the people say I am? And there's all these different versions, but if you read the narrative, it's clear that Jesus is asking not only who do the people say I am, but he's asking, why are you still here with me? Who do you say I am? This is his next question. Why are you still here with me? That question rings for us today. Who do people think that Jesus is because of us? Who are we becoming if we allow God to change us, also through this meeting with the other? That's why we need stories like Ruth. That's why we need to tell it again and again. Because we unlearn this stuff, don't we? We unlearn this stuff. Suddenly, we learn to hate a lot quicker than we learn to love. And we forget to love a lot quicker than we forget to hate. 
So we need to retell these stories. We need to live into them. We need to let them challenge us. Who are you? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you in your days of struggle and sorrow and in your days of joy and hope that he may bring you of his presence and peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, and in so doing, serve the Lord. And let us do it joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.